Okay, here we are. Uh, we're supposedly live. We don't know for sure. We're locked here with no one to talk to. Everyone looks very attractive. Ah, quick couple of things before I begin. I heard a statement this week uh, from a man I have significant respect for. Uh, a very wise gentleman out of Louisiana, he said, if the U.S. economy collapses, the world economy will collapse. And he's absolutely right about that. Okay, I'll hang on. I'll get out of, get out of your way. Okay. To repeat that, he said that if the uh, U.S. economy collapses, the world economy will collapse. And I believe that that is absolutely the case. China is on the precipice of uh, economic failure right now. And if they go down, well, the world might be able to survive that. But it's likely that Europe cannot. And then uh, the cascade uh, occurs. So... An economic failure in the entire world is a world event. And every time you see a world event, then you think of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. World events are the signs that we should pay attention to the most. Okay. So that out of the way, here we go. April the 19th, 2020, lecture number 99 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. That's where we've been for a while. We'll still be there for a long while, I suspect. But where are we, actually? Life is coming at us pretty fast nowadays. And a couple of weeks back, I began the lecture by exposing the dilemma with respect to what was included and that which was set aside. In other words, I was getting so much material uh, that I could not keep up with it at all. There's so much of it, and it's accumulating at an unprecedented rate in my so-called career. And so back to my diabolical plan, which is, you know, my default diabolical plan, that was to construct a pile. I always do that. I have a big pile. I'm a piler. And Lori goes, oh yeah, feel free to verify this with the lovely Lori. I'm a piler. Pilers are going to pile. That's what we pilers do, just like our, us list makers. And I, on the assumption that eventually I could reduce the height of the information that's coming in over the coming month, which is April. In other words, I could get everything in because all of it to me seemed to be extraordinarily important. Put it on the record, if you will, somewhere. And I didn't want anything to be excluded in my huge pile. And, and uh, I didn't want anything of current applicational value for sure to be omitted. But uh, not happening. Uh, pile cannot be compressed as much as I wish at least not in my ordinary, or in an ordinary manner, or not in my ordinary manner either. So I have a new diabolical strategy, and that's what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to grab whatever I can and throw it at the highest and most holy platinum model dry erase board. And hope for the best. So I've done this before. You'll recognize the form. In other words, it's going to be exhaustive. Exhaustive chaos, and I suspect that uh, the result is going to be wide acceptance from the vast internet audience because everyone loves a good food fight. 
Okay, so off we go. As you know, I am prone, inclined to present the four fundamental forces of physics, sometimes referred to as the fundamental interactions. I wish that I could put more stuff on the board today. Let me say right off the bat that I have so much material and so many questions, and I thought I could get so much of it in, but I wrote almost 20 pages, and I cut out four. So I'm not going to be able to do as much on the board as I would like. I'm holding this mostly for comfort. But you have four interactions, fundamental interactions in physics. You have electromagnetic, you have gravitational, you have the strong nuclear force, and you have the weak nuclear force. And yes, I'm aware of the proposed fifth interaction. I'm, in fact, the fifth interaction uh, that has elicited a slightly sympathetic response from me, your favorite highly trained religious professional. So yes, I'm aware of it. And if you're not, the fifth interaction or the fundamental, if you will, is essentially designed to account for observations in science and physics that are unaccountable. That's why it's my favorite. The unexplained, if you wish to think of it that way, or the unseen phenomenon. So this is observation or this is phenomenon that is observed that does not subscribe to the four fundamental fields. Again, electromagnetic fields, gravitational fields, the strong nuclear force field and the weak nuclear force field. And those that do not subscribe to those fundamentals, those four fundamental fields or those four interactions are dark matter and dark energy, for example, two of the most prominent. Anyway. And if you've listened to me on dark matter and dark energy, I bring up uh, that it is unseen and uh, has no scientific accountability at all. But yet they are confident that it is there. It has not been witnessed. It has not been verified. But yet they, they have to use it to explain the expansion of the universe. You might That's the Hubble constant. I can put that on the board. Begin to H sub O. That doesn't look like an H, but it is because I'm lazy. and I don't want to leave the paper with a pen. Miss Kelly chastised me for that in the fourth grade, and I have resisted her. Ad- admonition. Anyway, I submitted, or we submitted, by we I mean me, I submitted the hydrogen bomb as a defining piece of evidence that mankind has entered into the beginning of the end of the Gentiles. That I'll put up on the board. We have a beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles. Lots of ofs. So there is a beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles. And I said last week that a divining piece of evidence that mankind has at least got past the beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles is the hydrogen bomb technology. In a span of approximately 50 years, 1914 to 1964, unbelievable things happened. 1964, of course, I experienced that great earthquake. But aside from that, humanity, the knowledge of mankind as to the construction of the quantum level, the particle level of the creation of created matter, the physical reality at the, at the smallest level, again, the quantum level, 
knowledge of that has accelerated beyond anyone's estimation. There is something that's called uh, from 1900 to 1930. It is called the 30 years that shook physics. It's uh, a phrase that you will hear often. The 30 years that shook physics was followed by the overthrow of the strong nuclear force. Again, four interactions, gravitational, electromagnetic, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force. Those four fundamental forces, fields, if you will. So after the, the complete destruction of classical physics with regard to the quantum level, to the micro level, not the macro, classical physics, Newtonian physics still is valid at the macro level of reality. But at the micro level, there is a great incongruency. There's still tremendous mystery. So that was shook physics, 1900 to 1930. Essentially, Max Planck, Niels Bohr, you could throw Einstein in there, Heisenberg, De Broglie. These men that uh, figured things out that were extraordinary. That was followed by the overthrow of the strong nuclear force uh, in 1945 and 1952. Let me put those on. So from essentially 1900 to 1952, unbelievable things happened. And I want to know, where is, is that still the beginning? Or have, is this the beginning? And this is not the beginning. How far from the beginning is 1945-1952? I know that we are in the beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles. That, I think, is without dispute, without controversy. But where exactly, how long is the duration of the beginning of the end? How long is the end of the age of the Gentiles? And where are we? I would think that would be valuable. Again, let me repeat. The strong nuclear force maybe I haven't said this yet, is the inherent binding of subatomic particles. It is that which holds them in their proper positioning. And that was overthrown by atomic fission, atomic bomb, by hydrogen fusion. And that is why when I saw that, when, as a young man, when I recognized a strong nuclear force, had been completely controllable. And, and I mean, that's not the right word. It has been put into the ability of humanity to overcome it. I, I had to ask why. Why is that? How did it happen? And that's the reason I introduced the Manhattan Project last Sunday on first fruits. And there is never a good first fruits without uh, some kind of quantum physics. The, the conceptualization and the resultant construction of an atomic explosion, which again, nuclear fission, the splitting of atoms using loosened freed neutrons uh, to cause this chain reaction in an arrangement that releases heretofore. If there's a heretofore, is there a then before? Just wanting to know. Anyway, they, the unimagined power, no one could imagine the kind of power that they developed in 1945. Uh, that atomic explosion stunned the world. That was a human-created, self-propagating nuclear chain reaction. And the emphasis is on human-created. The human beings created that. They took the material that was there, they overcame the strong nuclear force, and they exploded in a way that no one could ever have thought. 
even though there were men that were conceptualizing it and had figured it out and had tried to warn uh, Roosevelt. Actually, they did. Einstein signed a letter to warn Roosevelt and other scientists as well. But Einstein was given that, that authority because he was so much more famous than the rest. Roosevelt knew, or the United States government knew, that it was possible that the, the Germans could, could do this. And so a race began. But human beings gained the knowledge required between 1945 and 1952. Human beings gained the knowledge required to destroy all life on earth. And that is the condition that we live in today. All life on earth could easily be destroyed. And this is especially obvious when one compares an atomic bomb to a thermonuclear bomb. The thermonuclear era began on November 1st, 1952. The atomic era began on July 16th, 1945. See how quickly that happened? Seven years we're into thermonuclear fusion. In November 1st, 1952, a hydrogen bomb was detonated in the Pacific on the Marshall Islands, and it was declared at that time to be the most momentous event in human science. When I'm in school, they would show us films of that particular explosion because of the significance it had was, again, considered the highest level of mankind's wisdom. And it was also called the greatest explosion in human history. And note again that adjective, human beings figured out how to do this. And confirmation of what was uh, posited on in the atomic explosion on July 16, 1945, that humanity could achieve an extinction, extinction event. I can barely say it. Extinction event. See, it was considered possible. So think about how long we had gone through human history essentially with a horse as a means of transportation. Before cars, you've heard me say this before, the manure from the horses was 10, 12 feet high on each side of the road. Finally, automobiles came and there was no manure. The first thing that automobiles, in case you think that horses are less pollutant than automobiles, just look at the pictures, the disease and the mess that is there. But automobiles eliminated horse manure in less than a week, maybe a month, the most, gone. Uh, that's essentially what happened here. We went from an atomic bomb to a thermonuclear bomb. Boom, seven years. And so that confirmed that human beings could achieve an extinction event. And that was reinforced. Actually, it was verified with a hydrogen fusion bomb. And that raises a bevy of obvious questions because you see the Teller Ulam. And I'll put that on the board for you so you can do some, some of your own research. It's named after people. Teller Ulam. That's the Teller Ulam design that was on the Marshall Islands. As a fission bomb. They took the fission bomb and they said, ooh, what if we take the fission bomb and we try to make fusion out of it, essentially. Because once they'd achieved fission, the splitting of atoms, they thought, can we fuse atoms? And if we fuse atoms, how much energy could we release then? So a fission bomb, the teller design, is a fission bomb utilized to create a fusion reaction in liquid deuterium. Now, this won't mean anything to you yet. I know that. I'm just giving you the vocabulary, getting you used to the concepts. And that deuterium was uh, super cooled to absolute zero, or real near absolute zero. So I had cryogenic deuterium. 
That's the fusion fuel. Again, I don't know very many people in my lifetime that could that have command of this material. And that's changing because of different educational sources. Unfortunately, the church never recognized what was happening in 1945 and 1952 and the significance of it theologically. But again, we had cryogenic deuterium. That's the fusion fuel. That is the fuel that we're going to cause fusion in as opposed to fission. Plutonium was the conduit between the fission aspect of the thermonuclear device, the fission stage, the primary stage, if you will, and the secondary fusion stage. So there I have uh, plutonium, uh, a plutonium interlock, if you will, conduit would be the, the correct. I should have stuck with that. And, and, of course, there's also uranium providing radiation pressure because I have to have extraordinary temperatures here. And I should say, by the end of these lectures, my expectation is that all of you, right now that's three of you. So that's not that high bar. But I'm assuming that all of you, all three, would be able to diagram or draw out the teller Ulam design. Which, of course, will alert the federal authorities. Immediately. Maybe the Iranians. Who knows? Anyway, the point. Yay, a point is that man fabricated a miniature thermonuclear sun on the earth. That's what he did. I want you to consider that. That's a Genesis event, isn't it? That's the fourth day. And that's astonishing. If you'd have told humanity that you would be able to replicate whatever the sun was on earth and unleash that power, even on a miniature scale, no one thought that. 1952, November the 1st, it happened. Now, it wasn't a bomb. It was an installation that blew up. But eventually they were able to make a hydrogen bomb fit on a missile. And they're on every submarine the United States has, which is a, quite the deterrent. If you haven't seen that explosion, I would recommend you do take the time to look at it and recognize what was it, what happened between 1900 and 1952, how fast it occurred. So to repeat the question here, how is it that fission, the splitting of atoms and the fusing of atoms is even a, the, a reality? How did it happen? Why isn't the strong nuclear force inviolable? That ultimately is where you go. How is it that it is fragile in the sense that it's not easy? It takes tremendous amounts of, as I said, uh, uh, heat. But why is it even possible in the first place? Uh, theologically speaking, I have this instability present in the creation. And man proved it in 1945, 1952. Man accessed that instability and released tremendous amounts of energy. Why is it even there? Why is it present in the creation? And this is, again, i got to read my notes here. This is Genesis 1-4, where, where God says, I was correct to say Christ says as well, it is good. Good. Genesis 1-4. Genesis 1-10, it was good. Genesis 1-18, it was good. Genesis 1-25, it was good. Genesis 1-31, behold, it was very good. Is this very good, 1952? How is it that that strong nuclear force could be overcome by a human being? Who put the strong nuclear force into place? Why is it unstable? 
Why is it violated? And for that matter, dislodging electrons with magnetic fields is instability, and I know everything about that. That's uh, that's the fundamental of uh, electrical physics. Plasma is instability. Electricity, I'm sorry, uh, lightning, fire, that's instability. Radiation, earthquakes, in, unstable instability. The earth is, is unstable. What has happened to it is good, it is very good, behold. I can jump a lot higher than I could a year ago. Uh, it's unbelievable. I could probably jump over this podium and maybe even into the first row with some kind of a running start and paramedics on site. Before I could roll over it. But, but anyway, where am I? What is the cause? We have a condition traceable to a cause. And what is that cause? What has made the strong nuclear force something that could be violated? I would have said it does not comport. It does not, uh, it is not consistent with behold, it is very good. There has to be an explanation. And order can be manipulated into disorder, releasing extraordinary, extraordinary amounts of energy and destruction. How can this be? That's the first thing to deal with. The second thing is Genesis 6. Man believes somewhat correctly that he has the power to facilitate worldwide death. He can extinguish everything down to the cockroaches. And get everything. Kill it all. All of life. With the deployment of the current reservoir of thermonuclear weapons. Why does man have this power? Because he does. It's not, again, in dispute. Certainly mankind thinks he possesses it. Obviously, Genesis 6 is connected because what is that? That is the first time life was extinguished by a worldwide event. So why does man have, how did man get here? Why was he allowed is ultimately the noatic fund was noatic fund. The noatic flood was a mass extinction event. Uh, I've turned this around because obviously their propel is not a sponsor of Cliffside Community Chapel at this time. We're waiting for them to contact us. Okay, I'll give them a little bit of a. Okay, that's enough. Obviously, mankind has gotten here. Why has it been allowed? Why Will humanity be allowed to reproduce Genesis 6? That's the fear of the world, is that somebody will fire a hydrogen weapon at somebody and that will cause retaliation and we will end up with total extinction of all life forms on the earth. Why does humanity have this capacity? It wouldn't seem logical. Remember, Genesis 6 was not a mankind... Uh, it was a cooperative. It was a collaboration with the angelic realm, the fallen angels. So I had both elements there. Tremendous amount of intelligence. No thermonuclear device. Do you think that if the angelic demons could have produced a thermonuclear advice, a device had Genesis, before Genesis 6, they would have done it? Consider that for just a second. Will the one God who put in the heavens, his thermonuclear device. 
Now, I get a lot of abuse for my artwork, but that is absolutely brilliant. Look at the, this, the disorder here that's intentional. I mean, that's magnificent. Look at the, the smile. Did I hear a door open? Maybe not. Okay. Because we have to get them out of here as fast as we can. That means just let me continue speaking and off they will go. God put the sun, that's a thermonuclear device in the heavens. He's the one that did it. Would he permit mankind to deploy hydrogen bombs? Or will he intervene? Because he does intervene when man reaches a level. Then he says, nope, stops. Did that at Babel? Did that at Sodom? Did that at Genesis 6? He will intervene. Will is, have we got to the place where he is about to intervene? And as, a, as just an aside here, one electromagnetic pulse from his thermonuclear device, uh, that will render man's thermonuclear devices kaput. Carrington effect. If there's an expulsion, one electromagnetic expulsion of any significant size greater than Carrington, that, uh, that will, uh, in this really fast. Or he could just reestablish supernaturally the strong nuclear force and make it impossible. Uh, that is an intervention. And now th- here's a question. What, what is the strong nuclear force anyway? Is it a who? Is it him? Is the strong uh, nuclear force God himself? That's the question I ask about gravity, that uh, Isaac Newton asked about gravity. If I can see dark matter and I can see dark energy, is that still nonetheless revealing a person, the intelligent agency of the creator, his consciousness, if you will? Anyway, 1914 to 1945 was a worldwide war. 1918 to 1920 was worldwide disease. And these were the signs of the beginning of the end of the Gentiles. So we know that we have got at least to the beginning of the end of the times of the Gentiles, the age of the Gentiles. 1945, again to repeat, was the atomic bomb. 1952 was the hydrogen bomb. And this is where Daniel 12:4 comes. The knowledge of man increases at the end of the age of the Gentiles, it increases exponentially and it's concurrent. And this particular increase, as you can see, was uh, the, the thermonuclear system, especially. We went through the Cold War. The Cold War was the impetus. The World War was the race. Had to beat Hitler. Had to beat the Japanese. Interesting, everyone always asks me all the time um, what I think about this. And I haven't studied it as well as I'm a military historian. I'm an amateur by any uh, definition. But it is a fact that Harry Truman looked at the... He did not... He had meeting after meeting where he was trying to decide if he should inform the Japanese that he had this weapon and he was willing to utilize it against them. And they argued against that because if they had gone to an island, the Marshall Island, and detonated it, Japan saw it, what would Japan do? Well, they were concerned that they would move prisoners of war and to protect their cities. So he had military intelligence that said there was no prisoner of war, no American prisoner of war in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. That's why they were chosen. He gave no advance warning because he didn't believe that they would be, uh, he believed that they would come up with a resistance that would 
make it difficult for him to do what he, what he thought he had to do. So instead of a protracted uh, infantry invasion of the Japanese uh, homeland, he, dropped, he decided to uh, deploy two atomic weapons. People would disagree with his, his decision, but uh, I think it has proved to be significantly wise. In any event, Daniel 4 says the end of the age of the Gentiles. World war, world disease, according to Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. We ended up with these, this capability, an extinction capability not seen since Genesis 6. And again, it's because of the world war that we got this capability. That was the energy provided. And biologically, you can see that that's happening now too with this pandemic. Look at the energy, the economic, uh, the, the wealth being thrown at solving this coronavirus. I should say really fast for those of you who are not following this very carefully. You should follow it very carefully. The coronavirus is particularly insidious because it, in, it causes inflammation in the pulmonary system, the lungs, and the neurological system, the brain, the cardiological system, which is the... Uh, the heart, obviously, and then the renal system. I will include the kidneys and the liver together. It causes inflammation. It's unbelievably difficult to deal with. If you are in intubation, your survivability percentage-wise is greatly reduced. So this is a difficult pandemic. And it is getting the attention of the entire world. Whenever anything is a world event, then pay attention to that. That tells you that it is attached to the end of the age of the Gentiles. So from 1952 to 2020, the world has essentially eliminated a bunch of things. It is, again, atomic weapons, but it's also eliminated the scattering of the Tower of Babel, hasn't it? All you have to do is watch your television. That's Genesis 11, 7 through 9. Languages are no longer a barrier. They can, you have translation devices in your hand. You can say something into it and put it into the other person's realm or uh, radius, if you will, personal space. And it will translate what you said into whatever language you choose. So the scattering, of the that's an intervention by God. That has been eliminated. Translation devices have immediacy. First time in human history, that is a condition that we should pay attention to as well. Confusion of language is being eradicated. If it hasn't already been eradicated, access to information, the distance that used to be there, is uh, that distance is resolved by aircraft in hours. Our computers and, and, and uh, what do we call that, time face uh, in seconds. I can go on and, and time face somebody. And this current pandemic is illustrating the ability to meet and communicate visually throughout the world. The entire world's scientific communities, biological scientists have come together and the scattering has been resolved. So that intervention has, in, the, in man's history, has been overthrown. That is a significant thing and we're living right through the midst of it and we should know it. Ultimately, dependency on electrical technology is unwise. So computers are extremely fragile. As I said, Faraday cage is insufficient. 
Think about it. If a Faraday cage is bombarded by an electromagnetic expulsion from this nuclear thermonuclear device uh, in the heavens, well, bet on the thermonuclear orange-yellow ball thing. It's going to win. Faraday cages are designed effectively for the Carrington effect. Well, what if you have a ten times Carrington effect? And we, have, we do know about bombs that are electromagnetic pulse bombs to destroy all communication in the world. So, if, to wrap this up, if World War, not the lecture, I'm not even halfway. I have, uh, I've, I've been mocked on, on, what is it called? What was it? It was, uh, it's not tube face, it's face face. Yeah. I've been mocked on um, face face by, I, I believe the man's name, Pastor Sherman. And where's, where is Pastor Sherman? I don't know where he, where he is, but I think he's somewhere in the Midwest. Am I right? Oklahoma? Okay, wow. And then, of course, uh, uh, Jennifer from Arizona said the end of the age is obviously here because he's going to answer a question from 2009. Yeah, so that's got to tell you that, that it's almost over. And she's, I hope she's right, actually. Uh, was the thermonuclear era, if World War and Spanish flu pandemic was the beginning of the end, and I think that's obvious, I hope that is obvious, it's the first time we had those two events post-Diluvian, was the thermonuclear era the halfway point between the beginning of the end and the end of the end? Does that make any sense? If I have a beginning of the end, if this is the beginning of the end, or the, the, B, o, the B of the E, I have an end of the end, wouldn't I? Where is the thermonuclear device? Is it halfway between the beginning of the end and the end of the end? And some will argue for the beginning of the end of the end. So, in other words, there's an end of the end, but there's a beginning to the end of the end. And if you follow that, then I've got you thinking like me, and oh my gosh. Run for your lives. But there are, there are arguments for the, the beginning of the beginning, and the halfway of the beginning, and the... But the or the, the the middle of the because you know I, as you know I have I have a I have a three and a half oops a three and a half of the seven years and in this middle we'll talk about this in a minute I have something quite significant there so I want to know I'm trying to figure out at least if I can figure out the beginning of the end can I figure out the end of the end or the beginning at least the beginning of the end of the end if I'm in the beginning of the end of the end I'm a happier person. If I'm still over here in the halfway point of the beginning of the end and the end of the end, between the end of the end and the beginning of the end, then I'm not nearly as happy because I'm ready to get out of here. I really am. I don't wish to be on intubation alone in some hallway of a hospital. That's not what I want. I want to go up in the air with the trumpet. And I'm bringing my own trumpet, grabbing the dogs. And a trumpet. Lori's going to have to get other dogs because we've got way too many to get. But the trumpet, I'm thinking I'm in the band. I don't care if I'm a millionth chair. I'll work my way up. i got time. There is a beginning of the end. 
That's Matthew 24, 7 and Mark 13, 7 through 8. We know there's a beginning of the end. And I'm saying to you to repeat from last week that that was from 1900 to 1945. And I won't quarrel with those who, uh, who argue for the beginning of the end of the end. But how long then is the end of the Gentile age? That's the question. Is it 100 years? Is it 120 years? Those are very common. They started out with 70 years. It didn't work out so well for them. Especially if you start with the World War in 1914. But when did the World War actually begin? You know, we know what lit it off. But when was the beginning of the war? And does that correspond to the beginning of the end of the Gentile age? We can't really discern that, can we? When did it start ultimately? Is From what year do we count? That's what I'm trying to ask you. The signs we know, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, pandemics, increase in knowledge. All of those are here. We can see them. The end of the Babel intervention, the extinction event of Genesis 6. We see all of this material, so we know we're here. Let's give you another question. Is the seven-year tribulation, if I say 120 years from 1900, uh, is the seven-year tribulation uh, in that 120 years, or is it separated out? In other words, is the seven-year tribulation still the time of the Gentiles, or is it not? Does the time of Israel begin? We know Jacob's trouble begins, but the Gentiles are obviously very active in that seven-year tribulation. So when does, when does the time of the Gentiles actually end? Is it the end of the tribulation? Just, okay. Moving along. Doing pretty good. I have been asked, and I do take requests. I need a jar. Request jar. I'll go ahead and throw a couple dollars in it. You know, call that seeding. That's to encourage the people to throw money into the jar for the requests. But I've been asked to readdress 2 Kings 5. So let me get rid of this. Because apparently I did it in 2009. I don't even know what that person looks like. Lori stares at me all the time. And goes, what have you done with Steve? Where She just goes, wow, what happened to you? This. 2 Kings 5, Elisha, Naaman the Naaman, the Syrian, the Jordan River. I'm just repeating these. I don't know if I have time to put them on the board. I'm giving you pieces. Seven times is there. Leprosy, the young Jewish girl, the two mule loads of dust. I said that in a way to help out. Gehazi's leprosy. Elisha's heart. Elisha demonstrates Christ's omniscience. It's important to know that. So let me give you some pieces really fast. I have 2 Kings 6. And I have a couple of people out there in the vast internet audience, one in Oklahoma where Sherman is, who I have given this particular puzzle. It's not really a puzzle, but it, uh, it is a difficult thing. 2 Kings 6 is the iron accent. Might run a little long today, Terry, so if you get if I get in trouble, that sends us to Joshua 
you got to flag me here. The iron axe head sends us to Joshua 3.16. That's the city of Adam. And that, of course, sends us to Romans 5. Joshua 4.10. Oops. Uh, that's the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the Jordan River. Uh, Matthew 3. Let me see, here's 16 and 17. That, of course, is the baptism of Christ. That's a triune event in the Jordan River. And, of course, all of that goes, all of that, we can't, we can't leave out Genesis 2 7 and Ecclesiastes 12 6 and 12 7. So they're all there. Whenever you're talking about the axe head, that is where you are. You have to put all of those together. Genesis 2, 7 and Ecclesiastes uh, 12, 6 through 7. That again, to repeat everything, because so many people listen for the first time. I got a wonderful letter from a gentleman named Dale. I, you, let me read it here really fast. Because he puts four things. And uh, yes, uh, uh, Sherry, I gave that letter that you sent me to Supper Dave, if he exists. He says, uh, this is what Dale says, I've only been listening to your teaching for about a month. I will never see scripture the same way again. You have ruined me. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> and he, he, lists, he said, I've learned some new things to pay attention to. Where else... Does something occur in Scripture? I've just told you the iron axe head occurs in Joshua 3.16, Joshua 4.10, Matthew 3.16.17, Ecclesiastes 12.6 and 7, and Genesis 2.7. And that's just a small piece of it. It goes much further than that. Uh, but he said, where else does something else appear in Scripture? How does it all tie together? Where is Christ in the Scripture I just read? Um, the Old Testament and the New Testament scream, Jesus the Christ is God, and keep doing what you're doing. Well, we'll give it a good shot, Dale, and thank you very much for that. I'll, I'll, I don't know if you, where you're listening to us or if you'll ever even hear this, so I'll, I'll try to address it to you as soon as I get an opportunity. Of course, Genesis 2-7 and Ecclesiastes 12-6-7 are connected to the iron axe head. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. Then the dust will return to earth as it was and the spirit of the breath of life. The spirit of the breath of life is Genesis 1-20, Genesis 1-21, Genesis 1-24, Genesis 1-28, Genesis 1-30, and Genesis 2-7. We'll return to God who gave it. That's Genesis 7-22. Put that in there. I thought... You were going to work on 2 Kings 5. I am working on 2 Kings 5. Second Kings 6 cannot be evaluated without 2 Kings 5. So we've got to keep that in mind. And in case you were wondering what Genesis 7.16 has to do with this. Because that connects to the tribulation and that gets us to Genesis 7.16. Genesis 7.16 is the shutting of the door. 
of the, of the ark. And again, what does that have to do with the beast of Revelation 13, 15 through 17? The mark of the beast, more specifically. The breath to the image of the beast. So you see, you have the breath of the spirit of life and you have the breath to the, to the image of the beast. That's how they fit. And the mark of the beast. How is the mark of the beast connected to the door of the ark? Because here's the door of the ark and here, not quite, the, but this begins to, uh, we'll develop the mark of the beast here in a second. The door of the mark and the mark are obvious and as is the breath and the image. Not so much on the breath and the image. The breath of life and the breath of the image is not so much connected so easily. They, they seem to be a contrast. But the door and the mark, like I said, are obviously connected. Because you see, the, the door of the ark is closed. Christ closes it from the inside. And no one came into that ark except Noah and his family. And they went through the extinction event. Taking the mark of the beast is likewise... In other words, it is a counterfeit. It's an alternative. God says that he seals the saved on the forehead. The mark of the beast is also on the forehead and on the hand. Why is it on both? There has to be a reason. And those who submit to the mark of the beast, who worship the Antichrist as if he were the God of creation, and make no mistake, the mark of the beast is not merely economic or biological. I made the case that it is biological Quite a few months ago or maybe years ago. I don't know. I can't remember. But the the mark of the beast is not just economic or biological. It is fundamentally a rejection of Jesus Christ. When you take the mark of the beast, you are rejecting Jesus Christ. And replacing the infinite, unmade Jesus God, unmade Jesus God, with the created, finite Satan man. So that is what's happening. You're rejecting Christ and you're replacing him with the Satan man. And thus the mark of the beast is primarily religious. It is biological, I will concede. It is economic, I will also concede. But that the level of that is insignificant compared to the religiousness of it. And note that this occurs, the taking of the mark at the midpoint of the tribulation. So mankind has seen incredible evidences that Jesus Christ is God himself. The I am and in the, fle- the, the flesh for three and a half years. So let me repeat that. That might not have made very much sense. So in the middle of the tribulation is the mark of the beast. Where people reject Christ and they worship the Antichrist. And for three and a half, that happens at the midpoint. And for three and a half years, I have unbelievable information that Christ is God. Unbelievable. Can't be So they know. They know it's true. They know Christ is God right here. They still choose the Antichrist. That is the mark of the beast. And that connects to the ark of the, of the, the Noahic ark. The midpoint then is a temporary suspension, if you want to think of it that way, an intermission, if you will, a lull before the final three and a half years. So we have this, this time. He gives you time. He gives you three and a half years of unbelievable Sunders, uh, wonders and signs, and then it gives you a lull, a pause. And now comes the next three and a half years. 
And those are the next three and a half years begin with the unleashing of the seven bowl judgments. And what's the first one? You all know this. I know I'm repeating it. But the first of the seven bowl judgments is is to cause a foul and loathsome, loathsome sore boils. Think of Exodus. This oozing boil that I don't believe is, uh, can, will ever go away. It won't be cured. It's an incurable oozing malignancy. And who does it afflict? It afflicts those who did what? Took the mark of the beast. First thing that he does after the midpoint, bang. Your mark that you were so happy with, all of a sudden is a malignant, incurable, oozing loathsome, smelling, foul malignancy. The point is, yay, finally a point. The taking of the mark is irrevocable. The point of no return, Revelation 14, 9 through 12. Dooming all who willfully, purposely, knowingly accepted the mark after they had full understanding that Jesus Christ is the creator God. That's Revelation 14, 9 through 11. If anyone worships the beast and receives his mark on his forehead or in his, on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends, ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever received the mark of his name. So if you take that mark, you have an irrevocable, irretrievable, no chance of being saved. That's the end. The door to the ark closes. The door to salvation closes at the midpoint of the tribulation. All you get now is a loathsome, foul-smelling, malignant, incurable, not incurable, mark. Thus the door of the ark of Noah and the taking of the mark of the beast both share this aspect of irrevocability. Barely say that. Irrevocability. Thank you. I know. I, I do that every now and then. People say your Hannibal Lecter routine needs work. Just once the door is closed, once the mark is affixed, judgment, salvation is ended for those with the mark. Now I really speed up. How, how, am I, how am I doing? Okay. How far can I go? <laughs> how, how far can I really go? Okay, we're going to find out. Speed up. Read along at home. A little bit of a little, little bit of time left. Second Kings five. Naaman, the supreme commander of the Syrian army, a great and honorable man. He's called a great and honorable man because Naaman was a great and honorable man. The Lord God, YHVH, that's the ineffable name of God. Because but Naaman, Naaman was a great and honorable man. God gave him victory. He's the superior. He's the supreme commander of the Syrian army, but God gives him victory. Naaman was also a mighty man of valor. Do I need to put Genesis 6 on the board? He's a mighty man of valor, 2 Kings 5.1, but he's a leper. So right out of the gate, lots of questions. The Lord God in his scripture, the Holy Spirit, describes the Syrian commander as a great and honorable man. Why is the supreme commander of the Syrian military described like that? Mighty man of valor, again, Genesis 6, Naaman was a giant. 
Luke 4, 27, of of the many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, only Naaman the giant was healed. Only the great and honorable supreme commander of the Syrian army was healed of leprosy. He's the only one until Christ came. So we know Old Testament leprosy was infectious. Luke 17, 12, has the ten men who were lepers standing afar off. How contagious, how infectious then is Naaman the giant? How disfigured is he? Does he have his nose? Does he have his fingers? Does he have his, uh, his extremities? Does he have his ears? What's missing? Naaman takes for himself in one of his excursions a young Israeli girl as a slave for his wife. His wife needs a servant. And he picks this girl. So what's the next question? Is Naaman's wife affected? Again, how contagious is it? Ten lepers, long way away, screaming at Christ. Why does the captured Jewish girl long for Naaman to be healed by Elisha? Because that's what she wants. She says, if only my master, Naaman, were here with, with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him. She cries out for Naaman the giant, who's a leper, who, who kidnapped her, essentially. And again, only Naaman is healed, Luke 4.27. And the only leper who returns to Christ at Luke 17 is a Samaritan. And the prophet is in Samaritan Samaria. That's probably just a coincidence. Move along, nothing to see there. Obviously, Luke 17.12 is the New Testament complement of 2 Kings 5. Luke 5, 12 through 15 also attaches to 2 Kings 5 because Christ touched that leper. I am willing to heal you, Jesus says. Go to the priest for an offering for your cleansing. Christ tells that cleansed leper, tell no one. But he touched him. Do you touch lepers? But he did. Obviously he can. And he healed that particular leper. And he said, go to the priest to make an offering. What is that? That's Leviticus 14. That's the two birds of Leviticus. Two birds of Leviticus, two birds. I got how many? I don't have three birds. I don't have one bird. I don't have ten birds. I have two birds. I have two birds in Leviticus 14. And that's the uh, cleansing provision for the uh, cleansed leper. I also have two birds. Where else, Dave? That's right. I have them in Genesis 17. I'm sorry, Genesis 15. My fault. My gosh. How did I say 17? So I have two birds here, two birds there. Do you think the two birds are connected? I'm betting yes. So he says to this guy, go get this cleansing provision. The two birds of Genesis 15 and therefore Leviticus 12, 7. I'm saying to you that the two birds and the two birds, uh, 14, Leviticus 15, Genesis and Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Am I answering the question? We'll see. Anyway, moving along. I've got to skip. The Syrian king sends a letter to the king of Israel, assuming that Naaman would be healed of what? Leprosy. And the king goes, you've got to be kidding me. He actually says, when he reads it, he panics. Am I God to kill and make alive? Because this guy's dead, and I am not going to make him alive. And if I don't make him alive, and you give me a letter saying I have to make him alive, you're going to kill me. Gah! The implication there is that leprosy is absolute, certain, incurable... Death. 
It's hopeless. And Naaman is white with leprosy. See Kings, Second Kings 5, 27. That's the final stage, stage four leprosy, if you want to do it that way. So again, how disfigured was Naaman in this stage of leprosy, where he is absolutely bright white with it? How long did he have to live? Obviously not very long. How desperate is his condition? Obviously incredibly desperate. Leprosy is a symbol in scripture of sin and death. See also the first sign of the latter sign of Moses, Exodus 4. The latter sign of the second sign of Moses is three sign. The leprous hand, white as snow, just like Naaman. So Moses has to come in here. Elisha, who knows and hears things, he intervenes. He has the king of Israel send Naaman to him. And Naaman goes to Elisha's house and stands at the door. And what? Probably knocks. Elisha doesn't open the door. Okay, we're at the ark, aren't we? And we're in, we're in Revelation 3. 16, as a matter of fact. And he, he just sends him a messenger. Go to the Jordan, wash seven times. The typological elements are literally in every verse. Find Christ, just as Dale said. Find Christ. Clearly, uh, 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 Elisha is representing Christ. Eventually... Naaman is healed on the seventh wash in the Jordan River, the Jordan River that comes from Adam, Joshua 3.16, and descends down into the Dead Sea where only evaporation gets anything out of it. His flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child. So what happened to his nose and his ears and his fingers and his toes? Where did it go? Fingers, toes, knees, and... I don't know, and I don't know how the song goes. I hope I never learn it. Because then the grandchildren will torment me ad, ad nauseum. Eventually, as I said, he's healed on the seventh day and everything is restored as a child. He is back almost perfect. So you can see what's happening here, I hope. I want you now to ask, where in the Jordan River did the axe head, Christ's baptism, the Ark of the Covenant, and Naaman happen? Because they all happened on the exact same spot. Why that spot? God obviously wants that spot to be known. Why? Anyway, the slaves of Naaman refer to Naaman as father. They say, Father, please do what the guy says. Just go to the river. What do you, what do you got to lose here? You're going to die here in 15 minutes. Look at you. We're probably all going to die with you. How contagious is he? Actually, as he goes to bright white, the infectious, contagious aspect of him begins to decline. That's Old Testament leprosy, not Malachi. Or, I'm sorry, Molokai in Hawaii. But obviously he is a beloved man, the Syrian. Absolutely incredible how these slaves, these servants, and the servants convince him to wash in the Jordan, 2 Kings 6.13. And washing seven times in this location of the Jordan River equates to salvation and resurrection. And Naaman, at the end of this, wants two mule loads of dirt. He doesn't want three. He doesn't want five. He wants two mules loaded with dirt. Okay, I'll say dust. Maybe that'll help. Two mules, two birds, two birds. 
Again, just a coincidence, move along, nothing to see. If it were a, and a lot of people think that this is a pagan purpose, as so many commentators assert. They, if it was for a pagan pur- purpose, would Elisha, who is Christ here, he's in the role of Christ, allow this for him to take the dirt? Elisha granted permission to him. Elisha slash Christ, if you wish to think of it that way, would accept no payment. That makes absolute sense. I raised you as out of the Jordan River. You're dead going in and I raise you out of life and restore you to what? The flesh of a little boy. And I don't want to be paid. Now Amon said, here, take the money. He said, no, no payment. The salvation from death, salvation, resurrection from death cannot be bought. There's a fundamental of scripture. It must be given. Duh. But he did allow two mules of dirt from this location Naaman said, I gotta have dirt from here. And you'll see commentators say that this is, this is holy ground in some kind of cosmic war. That's what they call this. And I think they are correct. Why? Because they agree with me. It's as easy as that. <laughs> you remember this has happened before, of course. Dale is right. Where else has this happened? Take off your sandals, you're on holy ground, Exodus 3.5. David cut off the head of Goliath and took it to a spot that Christ put his cross. Obviously, that was some kind of holy ground. Naaman took two mule loads of dust. And obviously, the two mules of dirt, dust, earth, ground, picket, you choose, that's got to take you to Genesis 2.7 and Genesis 3.19 and Ecclesiastes 12.6 and 7. Now, Gehazi wants to take payment for salvation. And the death and the leprosy that is on Naaman is transferred to Gehazi for wanting to sell salvation. And that takes you where? To where Christ cleansed the temple. To the Pharisees. Life must be freely given because the blood of Christ is infinite. Oh, there we go. Blood. What are we? What's the song say? Washed in the Jordan? No, washed in the blood. Seven times washed in the blood. Is that seven millenniums? Clearly, there's something about blood, the potter's field, the field of blood. Life is in the blood. He took two mule loads of dirt because he understood the principle of blood. So what's the question about why he took that? Where did he get it? Did he come out of the water and step on something and say, that's where I want it? How deep did he go in the water? Did he go in the water and take what was underneath his feet? What about that location? Christ makes sure that he, the ark is there. He makes sure the axe head is there. He makes sure he's baptized there. And Naaman is right there taking two mule loads of dirt. They know something. What did they know? Maybe I'll finish the answer, but I have given you the answer. 
you can figure out what it is from all of that information. You really can. I know I have faith in you, mostly. But if not, then I'll finish it off for you, plain as I can. But I don't know how I can get more simpler than that. Well, everything was there, including thermonuclear. Okay, let's uh, shut it down.